Jefferson. Um, if you would, uh, grab your pew Bible, and we're going to kind of repeat this. We're going to recite uh, some passages together. Or if you've got an ESV, we want it to be on the same page, on the same version. So try to get those. Uh, turn to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, this on, it's near the end, near the back, on page 1021, in the pew Bibles anyway. Okay? We're uh, going through the book of 1 John, and the title of the series is That You May Know. And of course, the issue is that you may know that you're saved. So if you're there, uh, do we have an overhead? Oh, oh, good. <laughs> so I'll, I really have no idea what you're looking at. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go ahead and we're going to read. I've, I've divided this up because it's a longer passage. So right now, we're going to read between verses uh, 3 and 6. And you might put your bulletin in that page because we'll come back to it later. You ready? And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, if truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Father God, we just praise you, and we want this to be for your glory alone. We thank you for the assembly of the saints, Lord. We thank you for anyone here who does not know you. We pray, Lord, that your sacrifice through your Son and your love to satisfy your justice will be clear to them when we're done. Lord, we pray that you would inhabit our praises later on. We give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This last Christmas day, uh, we kind of carried out one of our traditions, at least in recent years, where uh, after we have a little bit of time together, Chris has made up some cinnamon rolls, and we wrap them up with a little gospel track that we put together. And we go out in, on Christmas morning and look for lonely people, okay? And we ask them if they want a cinnamon roll. Just about everybody takes us, takes us up on that. And we go down to the bridge in North Topeka. We find a little tent city there. Uh, we go downtown, and there's a few people out there, very, very few. There is nothing open downtown, okay? And, and I ask myself, why is it on this one day of the year, everybody closes down? And I wonder if it's Jesus or if it's Charles Dickens, okay? You see, even Ebenezer gave Bob Cratchit Christmas Day off, and the last thing you want to be, is, be known as is worse than Scrooge, right? Then I heard about a news story where a Middle Eastern terrorist group invited Santa in, or they hired a Santa to come in for their kids, okay? Uh, and so it occurred to me that Christmas has become something, all right? I'm going to use a 75-cent word here, all right? It's 
ubiquitous. I had to look it up to make sure I understood it, but it means everywhere, all over the place, universal, inescapable, okay? And so it seems to me that Christmas has become ubiquitous. And this group, this group is in Korea, all right? Uh, and when you think about it, the only people who do not celebrate Christmas in some form are the bah humbug types and, ironically, God's chosen people, the Jews. Everybody else pretty much takes some recognition of Christmas. Now, we can have a couple of takes on this. Of course, for Christians, we can use this universal recognition of that day as a segue into Christ, and that's a good thing. You know, instead of Christmas, it should be mas Christ, more Christ, right? So that's fine. On the other hand, some unbelievers who celebrate Christmas may be deceived into thinking that because they celebrate Christmas, that they're Christians. It's kind of like, if I was born in the U.S., I'm a Christian. Or if I visited a church one time, I must be a Christian. So we can know for sure that confusion and deception is everywhere. A ubiquitous Christmas can lend itself to a ubiquitous Christianity, which can lead to a false sense of salvation. Now, in the past, we've even talked about pastor teachers who have told their congregations that there is no hell. Everybody goes to heaven, no, regardless of your lifestyle, regardless of what you do. So let me ask you some questions. If one says he knows Christ, can he live pretty much as he wishes? Sin and everything? Of course, if you think about it, the answer is yes. You see, people call themselves Christians all the time, or they show up in church all the time, and they live lives characterized by sin. But if you change that question to, can you truly know God and Christ as your Savior and live as you wish, sin and all, John gives a resounding no. You can't. Overall, John wants us to know that we know him. He wants to have assurance of our salvation. That's the primary goal of this book. So he explains that to know that we know him, we've got to examine ourselves closely so that we can have a clear sign, a clear assurance. Uh, we spoke last time, last month, about knowing right things about God, his holiness, his perfect justice, his righteous judgment on the one hand, and his mercy, grace, and forgiveness, as demonstrated on the cross, on the other. Some don't want to talk about that justice and judgment. But can you really know God's love without understanding how fallen and undeserving we are and how loving he is by putting Jesus on the cross for us. Can you really understand it? You see, Christ's sacrifice on the cross gives God's love a context or a reference point 
God's love untethered to Christ's sacrifice is just a subjective emotion which depends on how I feel today. Okay. Jesus' example shows us what love really is. Dying to self and sacrificing for those we love. This is the core of the gospel, and understanding it is key to knowing that you're saved. But it's not just knowing right things about God that gives assurance about salvation. Now, I need to give a caveat here, a warning. Before getting into the signs of salvation, we've got to keep in mind that religious people are always looking for ways in which they can earn salvation. But that's a mission impossible. You can do nothing to earn your salvation. Christ did it all for us. That's his love. And even though that's the most important message, that's not what we're talking about right now. Rather, we're addressing the question of assurance of salvation after confession of faith and genuine belief in the heart. So please do not hear me or any other teacher at Lion and Lamb saying that these are steps to your salvation. What does give us that assurance? How can one know that he really loves God and is saved? Uh, you'll be pleased to know that that understanding is not rocket surgery. Okay? John makes it really simple. Uh, and I, I know in the past, I don't have to be confused by the screen up there, that I've sometimes gotten off on these, these text screens. So if I'm on the wrong one, would you please say so? Okay? okay? All right, because I, I don't know what's up there. All right. Um, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. You see, earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so this tandem of knowing and loving God leads to obedience. And this obedience reveals the authenticity of our faith and our maturity in Christ. And John sees a huge gulf between saying something and actually believing, knowing, loving, and doing. Essentially, in verses 1 and 2 that we, discovered, we talked about last month, we remember that Jesus is our advocate. He stands beside us before the throne, and he stands in our place on the cross, which John calls our propitiation. He then calls upon true believers to keep his commandments. The word keep there means to guard. The idea here is that we desire to guard his commandments as precious treasure. What does that mean? It means that as we obey, our assurance of salvation is strengthened. It's fortified. And when I obey, it's not checking boxes. Rather, it's a delight. It's a heart response to his love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness. On the other hand, if I claim to know him, but I do not obey, I am a liar. A hypocrite. My walk does not match my talk. And all the talk about knowing him rings hollow. In short, genuine salvation brings a 
desire, a passion, and decision to obey him. And when we have that desire to obey, we have assurance of salvation. John then states that whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Now, the love of God can have several meanings, but in context here, we're talking about our love for God, not God's love for us or God's kind of love. After a genuine decision for Christ, a new believer starts to obey and guard his word, not out of obligation, but out of a loving desire to please him. And as a result, the love of God grows and we mature as we're discipled. So this verse could be expanded to say, he who, as a pattern of life, guards the precious treasure of his command, truly loves God. By this willing obedience, one may know that he's saved. Again, it's important to remember that keeping his commandments is not a requirement of salvation. Rather, it's a clear sign that you know Christ as Savior. Genuine obedience is not the cause, but it's the effect of salvation. We've got to be clear here because people can live generally moral lives and even go to church without being saved. Uh, you first, of course, got to recognize that you're a sinner, you fall short of God's righteousness, and you deserve hell. Then you can understand the need to repent and accept the free gift of salvation offered by God's grace through faith in Christ's sacrifice on the cross as payment for my sins. It's Christ that cleanses us from unrighteousness, not obedience or good works accomplished. Verse 5 is in contrast to verse 4. So consider this. One who's being witnessed to can simply mouth certain words for a prayer. And in response, an eager evangelist or a well-meaning parent might tell that one that he or she is in fact saved. Is it that evangelist or parent who may? makes that call? No, God does. So if the target convert doesn't, over time, develop a desire to obey God's commands, in other words, there's no love for God, others discipling that person would be wise to revisit that basic decision. Remember the not-so-subtle words of John, he who does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. That doesn't sound like salvation to me. We've got to recognize, however, at this point, that new Christians are called little children in the Word. They lack spiritual maturity, and they will stumble as they learn to walk in Christ. This is certainly true of me when I was first saved. Despite tripping over old sins, a genuine convert will persist and continue to grow and mature. And of course, this shows you how important discipleship is. Now, understand, the goal here is not to create doubt, but rather assurance of salvation. And we're also warning against having or giving a false security and simply saying a prayer, going to church, or good works as the basis or reason for salvation. So, if you've got the privilege of discipling another to a decision for Christ, 
Very, very exciting thing to be involved with. You can tell another what the Bible says about being saved, but you can't tell somebody you know they're saved. That's not our call. On the other hand, John is telling us that one may certainly know about one's own salvation. Verse 5 says that by guarding the treasures of his commandments, that desire, one demonstrates his or her love for God. The verse ends with, by this we may know that we are in him, that we're saved. Okay, verse 6. Is that where we are? Good. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The word abide there means remain, to stay. The idea here is consistency or steadfastness in obedience. And so John here confirms the process that Paul declares in Romans 8, where he says that God foreknew and predestined me to be conformed, to be conformed to the image of his son. He wants to become He wants me to become more and more like Christ every single day. The word ought there conveys that I really should be imitating Jesus in my life. And I think on your your handout, this imitation flows throughout the word, and there are some other passages that you can look at. If I'm truly abiding in him, I will not be living in my strength, but in his own. So to abide in him means to become more like him by knowing him better day by day. How do we do that? By the daily disciplines of prayer, talking to God, and reading his word, listening to God, and meditating on it. Therefore, a clear sign that should lead us to assurance of salvation is an increasing obedience to God's commands out of love or desire to submit to his control for our lives. So let's move on now to the next one. Uh, if you'll turn back in your ESV Bibles to uh, 1 John 2, we're going to read verses 7 and 8. Okay? All right, here we go. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, It is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, you could say that John is simply carrying on his discussion about obeying God's commands, but it's fair here to make a distinction in that this is a very specific command in context to love one another. The first test of our salvation was knowing Jesus and loving God, which we covered last month. The second one, we just finished, loving and obeying God. Now we come to the third, the specific command, to love others. And this passage starts with a term of endearment. There's three Greek words for love in, uh, that we know of. Uh, we're pretty sure this is not eros love, and the King James uses the word brethren, which might lead you to believe we're talking about philia, or brotherly love. However, the word here is agapeo, which sounds familiar. It comes from the root agape, which is selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. This is especially appropriate in this context. 
The ESV here uses, therefore, the term beloved. And the order in which John proceeds sends a clear message. Our right love for God is absolutely necessary for our right love for others. Now, John starts off by saying he has no new commandment, but an old one that you had from the beginning. Now, it could be that he's saying that Jesus already gave this command earlier in his gospel in uh, chapter 13, where it says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He could also be referring to the ancient roots of this command, which come out of Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is repeated throughout the Bible. Jesus calls that the second great commandment when he said, you right after he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind in Matthew 22. By that you had from the beginning, John means that each person at the point of genuine salvation has a new nature which willingly receives and obeys not only the command to trust Jesus, but also the ancient command to love others. Now, this is borne out in the completion of the verse, the old commandment is the word which you have heard. So, now, taking a look at this passage, Pastor John Piper calls this verse, quote, a very remarkable rebuke to typical gospel preaching and witnessing today. Now, Piper here is referring to the temptation that some have to acquire a gospel scalp by extracting a prayer and proclaiming it done. So, to look at this, uh, I'd like to do some role-playing now. Before we start, I need to, call to, to issue all the appropriate disclaimers. Chrissy warned me that I could easily offend here particularly those with young children. So understand I'm making no statement about who is or who is not saved. Instead, the point here is not whether one's saved. The overall topic being assurance of salvation, we want to talk here about how a disciple maker or evangelist can avoid deceiving a possible convert. And we'll talk about little children after this demonstration. Again, Paul reminds us that it is confession of the mouth and belief in the heart that saves. John makes clear that belief results in both obedience and love out of desire from the heart. And obedience and love are the result and confirmation of salvation. And this should tell us something about our explanation of the gospel. So as my teaching aid comes up, can we have this mic on, please? Uh, I need you to imagine some things here, okay? Use your, some assumptions here. Pretend that we're co-eds. I know that's a little harder for me <laughs> than for her, okay? And also assume that I've, I've done my best to explain the gospel to this young lady and that she has prayed a prayer to accept Jesus as her Savior, and as far as I can tell, it's genuine, okay? And so uh, she asks a sincere question. So does my prayer mean that I'm going to heaven? 
Okay, I was going to do, do a stop action where she just takes that pose all the time while I talk, but I've got to say a few things before I respond. <laughs> okay, uh, what do I want to do right now? Don't I want to say, yes, you're going to be in heaven with me, and I want to grab her and hug her, right? I mean, don't you feel that way in that situation? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but let me ask you some questions here. Um, do I know what's going on in her heart? Do I have the authority to proclaim her saved? Do I? Ah. Well, if I were to say that, if I were to tell her that she is saved, and she wasn't sincere, she had no feeling in her heart, might I not be aiding and abetting a deception for her, maybe, if she talks to nobody else for the rest of her life? What I can definitely say to her is this. Yes, the Lord says that if you confess, or the Bible says if you confess with your mouth, which I heard you do, and if you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins as the Son of God and that the, the God the Father raised him from the dead, yes, you are saved. That's what I can say to her because that's the truth. Okay, now we depart and, uh, and she comes back to me a couple of weeks later. Hi, Kent. I wanted to thank you again for sharing the gospel with me and leading me in that prayer. But I have more questions. Okay. Um, I know that some people have had real emotional feelings and after their experience of praying that prayer, and I just haven't had that. So what does that mean? That's a great question. You know, some people do have an emotional response or experience after praying for salvation. Others don't, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that emotion that they have, but we need to re remember here that it's not emotion, it's not feelings that saves you. It's Christ's work on the cross to pay for your sin that saves you. So you should not consider your lack of any kind of emotional response as a sign that you're not saved. Okay, but there's another problem. You see, um, I've still been having bad thoughts, and I still... I've actually said things that I'm ashamed of. And um, I thought that when you're saved, you either didn't sin or you didn't sin as much. Oh, hey, that's another great point. I'm sorry we didn't cover that before. Please understand that we have a sin nature. And when we're saved, it doesn't mean we're perfect. Uh, all it means is that we're forgiven. So as you grow in your faith, you should have more and more victory over your sin nature. Uh, and as a safe person, you can know that after you sin, you can repent and seek forgiveness, and you will be forgiven, and you don't have to feel guilty about that sin anymore. Okay, thank you for explaining that. I'm, I'm sorry I have so many questions, but this is really important to me. I really want to know uh, uh, that I'm saved, so can I? 
Absolutely. John says in the Bible that you can know for sure as you read your Bible and become more familiar with what God requires of us as Christ followers. As you pray, you'll, be, you'll develop a desire to obey him. One of those commands is to love other people, which means that you and I have to forgive people as he forgave us. And as we do that, we become stronger and stronger in our assurance that we are, in fact, saved. So even though you'll never be perfect, I will never be perfect, we are forgiven when we take those steps. Thank you. we got to go. All right. We'll see you later. <laughs>
Uh, But it's also new and true for you and me because John says the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. uh, Jesus explained this when he said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. So in other words, at true salvation, the darkness in our lives our pride, our idolatry, our selfishness, our resentment, and other sins starts to pass away because the light of Christ casts out that darkness and we begin to genuinely obey and love from the heart. Love for others is old. In fact, it's as old as God's character. Later uh, in this series, Lord willing, we will study the passage that says flat out, God is love. Uh, We saw that love for others rooted in the law found in Leviticus. Jesus was tested by the pharisaical lawyer who asked, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said, one, love God, two, love others as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets in Matthew 22. So yes, love is as old as God, yet it is new in its depth in Jesus. It's also new to us at salvation. One commentator put it like this, love is as old as the sun and it is as new as the dawn. Think about that. Okay, uh, I won't make you look up in your Bible here. Let's, we're just going to say this, these last three verses together. Okay, ready? Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now John here returns to this clear contrast between light and darkness in comparison of those who love God and those who do not. But it's even more stark than that because... In 1 John 3, the next chapter, he calls those in the light the children of God and those who don't obey or love others the children of the devil. So an honest reading in context of verse 9 would be that if I say I know God and love him but cannot stop hating others, I'm simply a child of the devil. That's being honest. Again, this is not, understand, this is not an occasional irritation or impatience patience with another. It is hard, consistent hate and anger, like that explained in Matthew 5, where Jesus talks about this being the hard equivalent of murder. Therefore, if you cannot resolve that kind of feeling towards another, you might want to consider that might be a red flag in the question of your own salvation. You see, he forgave you. He forgave me. Right do we have not to forgive others? On the other hand, if you love others, not perfectly, but consistently, that's evidence that you're abiding in the light and you are, in fact, saved. In addition, there's no cause for stumbling for one in the light who walks as Jesus walked. Finally, verse 11 repeats the warning of darkness. He who hates his brother is in darkness. That means he's spiritually dead. He lives in darkness. That means he's a slave to sin. 
He doesn't know where he's going. That means he doesn't have any godly purpose for his life. And he is blind. That means he doesn't know where he's going ultimately. And tragically, if you think about it, that is the state of many in the world today. Even those planners, you know, those, those type A's who look at the steps to success, for, to plan their career, their vocation, their goals in life. Because once achieved, there's nothing left but stuff, money, and maybe some recognition. And that's the good news. Because without coming to the light, even these worldly successful people are blindly walking into an eternity in hell. So, to close all this out, our salvation can be sure. And we know that by the test of being characterized by love and obedience for God and love for others. Now, I put some questions on your, your handout. If you want to take a look at that individually or in a group, that would be great to con further consider this. Because I think this is a vitally important passage to understand and comprehend. It's, we talked earlier, this is pretty black and white, pretty confrontive. Let's pray. Father. We give you all praise. We want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you've given us to be here and to absorb your word. Lord, make it sink deep into our hearts. Help us to know you better, to love you, to obey you, and then to love others as you have loved us. We will never be perfect. We will stumble. But we know as long as we're walking in your direction, we are secure. Lord, help us to have that assurance in each and every heart here. And if there are those who don't know you, please prompt them to talk to somebody here today. We give you all the praise and the glory now in Jesus' name. Amen.